Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, January 30th, 2017, the Muslim Ban Special Relationship Edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. I'm joined as usual by Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? I'm not quite sure yet, Adam, but I suspect that sentiment is shared by a lot of people who are listening to us. We are one working week into Donald Trump's tenure as president of the United States. I know it feels like a year, doesn't it, everybody? But uh, uh, that's honestly how far we are. So much, so much that we could talk about. Um, his steps to roll back the health care expansion that took place under President Obama, his reinstatement in intensified form of the global gag rule that uses American aid to suppress the availability of abortion, he announced the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal is dead, there was the Women's March that saw millions of people take to the streets, and good for them, to object to his leadership, um, and then the absurd argument he then had with the media and the facts over whether his inauguration crowd was the biggest ever. Uh, it, was, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't even the biggest in the last eight years. Um, and uh, as, a, as a bow to tie the whole week up, there's the fact that Gallup says he's now hit 50% disapproval uh, in his polling after just eight days in office, which uh, normally takes hundreds of days, even by presidency struggle. But all of that is, uh, uh, is simply uh, surrounding furnishings for the two topics that we've decided to narrow our discussions to today. First, the administration closes its first week by bringing its fist down on immigration policy. Second, British Prime Minister Theresa May became the first foreign leader to visit the new president, keen to buff up the special relationship. How'd she do and how should we feel about her doing it? On Friday, January 27th, President Trump, I still can't quite get used to those words, President Trump issued an executive order uh, barring any Syrian refugee awaiting resettlement in the U.S. from entering the country, freezing all refugee intake for 120 days, and banned citizens of seven countries designated as high risk for producing terrorists from coming to America on any visa type. Those countries are Iraq, Iran, Syria, Somalia, Sudan, Libya, and Yemen. The theory... Uh, if we are to take it at face value, is that during those 120 days, a more intensive vetting system for incomers will be created to reduce the imagined risk of terrorism. The order was apparently drafted by the White House without close collaboration with the Justice Department or Homeland Security or any of the other people that you might think that they would go via, with the result that confusion reigned when it was put into effect at the border. For one thing, it was unclear whether the entry ban applied to those who already had residency rights or green cards in the United United States or duly approved visas. Reports promptly flowed back from all corners of people prevented from boarding flights overseas, turned back at US airports, detained for hours upon arrival, and subjected to extended interrogations by immigration services. Protests broke out at airports around the country, and lawyers descended in force to try and assist those affected. Uh, the American Civil Liberties Union, ACLU, um, took to the courts to try and resist the order, which critics said was a version of the so-called Muslim ban promised by Donald Trump during the election campaign, edited very slightly by lawyers to sidestep accusations of unconstitutional religious discrimination. And it's been a bumper fundraising week for the ACLU as a consequence of this. Apparently, last time I heard, they'd taken in $20 million in the course of the last few days, which is approximately five times their normal annual uh, donation. Level. So, with its combination of anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim substance and apparently cavalier slapdash execution, this affair seems to capture for a lot of people what they feared a Trump administration was going to turn out to be. Um, how strongly does this register on your Richter scale of horror, Scott? Let's take it. Um, let's take it at two levels first, shall we? Let's let's go via the like the the policy itself for starters. Um, and then we can broaden out to the political theater and symbolism of it. Is there any way in which, um, controversial and open to debate though it might be, one could argue the case for this policy as a necessary and important step to defend American national security? No. <laughs> and, it, and it was in no way is it coming out of an assessment of national security. I mean, let's just put that to bed immediately because... Those seven countries you mentioned, and I'm sure listeners may know this already, the sum total of attacks by nationals of those seven countries since 2001 inside America considered extremist attacks 
that total is zero. So there is no grounds for saying there's an existent threat. The White House certainly didn't produce any evidence of a potential threat which would justify this measure. And of course, in no ways is this proportional to perceived threat. So there's no criteria in terms of which particular you know, people may be threatening the U.S. who are being targeted. It just simply is everyone who is linked to those seven countries. Which is hundreds of thousands of people, yeah, to be clear, who are, who are being affected by this. Not as in, like, in theory, they are being prevented from entering. Hundreds of thousands of people who either are already in the United States or have a visa and therefore would be on the way are affected by this. The number of immigrants with those ties, I believe, and I've got to just go check, is around about 780,000 to those countries, the largest proportion of which is from Iraq. Mm-hmm. And then Iran, where many people have come to the U.S. since 1979. Now, a number of those people have become U.S. citizens, but I'm sure at least half of them have not. So that is hundreds of thousands, just green card holders. Then you start to talk about those who are on student visas, who are on business visas. Of course, anyone who holds a tourist visa is affected by this. And yes, you are talking about very, very large figures, and thus very, very large damage not just to what happens within the U.S., as we have seen the reaction, the protest, the instability, the chaos, but the damage to the American image abroad. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, so how seismic is it? In substance, it's seismic for each of those individuals concerned. I'm not as sure it's seismic in terms of practical effect as some of the other decisions that the Trump administration has made, which we'll talk about later. But in terms of image, this is seismic. Because it really rips away the mask from the tension that we have. And that is that Americans live for the ideas of freedom, tolerance. We promote those even if we don't necessarily live up to them. And Donald Trump and his inner circle have really just shredded any illusion that they're coming in to uphold values. They will use the notion of security, whether or not you believe in it, for a power grab. Now, how far that goes... We'll see, but I think it is notable as a starting point for further discussion with you. What you pointed out, this was not a considered action by a government. There was no consultation with agencies. The military were not consulted to assess whether or not there was an imminent risk. Justice were not consulted in terms of the legal aspects. State Department were not consulted about the diplomatic aspects. Homeland Security were not consulted in any way about implementation or effects. That means that it is a small group of people, mainly unelected people, Mm. who have decided that this step is good for everyone. Yeah, because, I mean, there is a a principled consideration to be had about liberty and civil liberties and security and the steps needed to provide for national security and how one reconciles those two and all... All adult participants in good faith in the political process need to wrestle with some of those kinds of questions. But this doesn't seem at all like a measure that's on point with regard to that, because one of the most striking things about this is if you go to any of the career professionals whose job is to deal with terrorism and immigration and the risks and the connections between the two and say, so... This policy that Donald Trump has just signed into into effect, is this framed in this way helpful, useful, doing what you would recommend and want with regard to this issue area? And it's just a blanket no. This is like this is this has no relationship to uh, the uh, the proposals someone who had those priorities and was knowledgeable about that area would give you. No, because there's an effective security system has to have some type of targeting and uh, discrimination, I mean discrimination not in the negative sense of the word, but to discriminate between those who need attention and those, in fact, who pose no threat, because otherwise you just are overstretched in terms of, and think about what we've seen just in the last 72 hours of the amount of American resources that have been thrown at this at airports across the country mm. and like this almost needle-in-a-haystack approach that maybe we'll find someone who actually does pose a risk. Here's another reality check. Look, contrary to what Trump and his, his coterie say, the U.S. has a fairly strict system 
mm-hmm. of vetting, which is already in place. Anybody who's applied for a visa for the United States from any of these countries knows that it is a very protracted process. Well, that's, that's, that's why I was so skeptical in my, in my references to this 120-day per- yeah. period of time in, in, in the introduction, because like, the way Donald Trump framed his Muslim ban originally and the way this is framed is, go, okay, we just need to have a pause for now while we get a handle on this, take a look at it, work out what to do, as though... Up until this point, there's just been an open border and people wandering across it, as opposed to the end result of many years of smart people working out how to vet people and what the appropriate process is already being in place. So they're acting as though they have to create a vetting system out of whole cloth, whereas in fact, they're they're, they're just completely ignoring the really quite thorough uh, investigations that people have already got to go through before they can walk into the country. Absolutely right. So what they've done is not only have they brought in a chaotic system you know they have ripped up a system which i actually think is too stringent in some respects having gone through it or had friends go through it but at least a system which you could say was organized was set down so even if we walk back the horror of the last 72 hours getting that previous system back into place is going to take some time and it's coming to something um when the administration of george w bush Uh, starts to become a reference point for us in terms of what the parameters of competence and political wisdom might be. But it's worth remembering that during that period, there was was so much effort, so much vocal and visible political work went into emphasizing that, um, you know, however counterproductive we may have thought some of the steps the bush administration took were in national security terms however ill-judged its foreign adventures may have been the message with which they were sold was always the united states is not in conflict with muslims the vast majority of muslims are our friends they are uh, our allies in this conflict against extremism and the worst place this conversation can go is for uh, the spirit of xenophobia and discrimination to descend and divide uh, muslims around the world from americans um and this administration almost as if they're deliberately reverse engineering what everybody up to now has acknowledged would be the worst case scenario seems to have decided to set off in such a way as to guarantee that outcome like they if you wanted to turn the current situation into a straight up face off between um Muslim jihadist extremists and a hardcore of xenophobic uh, sectarian American right-wing zealots and then force everybody to make a false choice between them, then, then you couldn't do much better than, than to craft the scenario that they just have. Exactly. So let's add two more points into the mix, which have kind of been overshadowed you know, by the levels of awfulness of this. One is of, to just be very clear here. No Syrian refugees. Now, the United States had been very parsimonious in terms of taking refugees before this, only 12,000 Syria refugees compared to 800,000 for Germany in what is one of the most catastrophic events um, for generations. But then, not only are they taking no Syrian refugees, here's the kicker that a lot of people, they issue an executive order that says, however, we will give priority to admissions Mm. of Christians from the area, from the Middle East, under the guise of we are protecting religious minorities since Christians are the minority in many Mm. of these countries. So now the signal that goes out to the world in terms of your point, which is this will be twisted by everyone who has a sectarian agenda, is that the United States does not give a damn about Muslims, whether or not they're the victims of violence or the perpetrators, Mm. but they will protect any Christian without question. Mm -hmm. Just imagine how that plays out in a Syria, a Lebanon, a Jordan, Mm. Iraq, etc., and, and, you know, and it used to be that you thought when you were criticizing American policy in, say, the Bush days, I, mean, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm overgeneralizing about who used to feel this way, but I used to feel in general, okay, you, uh, you are making it very easy to, for people to portray you as not caring about Muslims because of the, the you know, somewhat blinkered and solipsistic and heavy-handed way in which you're pursuing what I think probably in your heart you think is the right thing to do. Whereas with these guys, I, 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 I don't really know that I could tell someone they're wrong. Like if, if, they, if, they, if their analysis is that the reason why Donald Trump and his uh, relevant advisors are happy to do this is because they basically 
care less about what happens to Muslims than what happens to other people, I kind of think they're onto something at this point. Yeah. It's hard to rebut. Let's, let's try this. I mean, because I, I, I don't want to be too charitable to the Bush administration. But here, this was an administration which, in terms of a blind grab for resources or control of resources um, and to extend American power, they were willing to, to erase the Iraqi people from the equation. They just didn't exist. This is an administration which doesn't do that. It actually says, yes, these people do exist. We recognize they exist. And we are going to portray them as an eternal enemy and keep them out of our country. So they've taken it up a level. I mean, when, when you've got even Dick Cheney, mm-hmm. right, who erased the Iraqi people in his own way, mm-hmm. saying he opposes or would have opposed this type of ban, you realize that we are now in a different world in terms of, let's call it what it is, racism and Islamophobia are reconfiguring American policy now. Mm-hmm. And if there is nothing done to check this, will do for some time to come. Yeah, well, I mean, there are two different kinds of projection, right? Like the one of the one of the key analytical failures of the Bush administration seemed to be that they wanted to see the Iraqi people as Americans in waiting, almost yeah. who who just would take the slightest uh, opportunity to embrace whole wholesale a handed over American mandate to build. Uh, an America-loving pluralistic democracy in the Middle East. Um, and that, you know, turned out to be at variance with what was practical, realizable on on the ground. So it was like an excess of optimistic naivete about, uh, uh, about the problems of that region, whereas this is the opposite. It's like uh, a blanket projection of the worst possible um, qualities and sentiments that one could imagine uh, Iraqis having onto the entire category and indeed onto several other countries. Well put. And that reminds me, because you remember the first person who was picked up and detained that we found out about on Friday under this was an Iraqi who had worked as a translator mm-hmm. for the American military, right? So one of those Iraqis who could be become like us in that superficial notion of the Bush administration once they recognized mm-hmm. the Iraqi people. And here he is close to tears right explain what so you've got you've got people who spent years pretty directly looking death in the face in order to help the u.s government do a thing that they probably shouldn't have been doing in the first place i.e successfully occupy iraq and now having gone through all of that i mean how much more could you prove yourself to be inclined to embrace the united states and its interests you have those people being left on the other side of this uh this red line of uh assumed loyalty that's being drawn by the administration uh, to uh, to try and tie this in a little bit to um the broader political mm-hmm. sentiments of the administration and the the personnel here there's a lot of overlap with the broader anti-immigrant position of the Trump administration, isn't there? Like this, th- this particular step is wearing a cape of national security and fear of terrorism and all of that. Yeah. But this is also an administration whose other signature vote-getting um, policy during during the presidential primaries was building a massive wall with Mexico uh, because apparently uh, armies of people are simply walking across the border and uh, and this is the, the best way to prevent them. So. Like, it doesn't take that big a leap to say that uh, in one case by selling the pitch on the basis of jobs being stolen, in another case by selling the pitch that this is a threat to national security, mm-hmm. this is an administration whose impulse of the heart is essentially that there are too many brown people yeah. in the United States and some big visible uh, government moves to show everybody who shares that opinion that the government's now on their side are what's called for. So um, the, the, the name that immediately leaps to my mind here is Steve Bannon, the, Steve, the chief strategist of, of, the, uh, of the Trump administration, who was the editor of Breitbart.com, the mm-hmm. alt-right, to put the euphemism of the day to it, uh, a hard-right news website, who then became Trump's campaign manager and who is now apparently a full-time member of the National Security Council, we are told by reports that are emanating. So that kind of um, racially tinged... Um, rock-hard conservative uh, agenda, yeah. which has views across the board that uh, that, that center on 
discrimination and race as like a primary driving force in, in politics and policy is now at the heart of the American government. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I might put it in slightly wider context if I can walk it back a sec, because mm-hmm. let's just remember the full scope of this past week, um, that it starts with measures such as uh, reimposing the Mexico City decision, which is the one that bans funding for U.S. agencies supporting family planning uh, overseas if it includes abortions. Now, okay, that's within the scope of what we expect because every Republican president reinstitutes Mexico City. But then we move on to a step such as extending the Keystone and Dakota pipelines, or renewing them, I should say, in uh, the northern U.S., even though they are likely to cause significant environmental damage and the Dakota pipeline runs across sacred Native American land. Mm-hmm. And issuing that order, and by the way, then gagging the Environmental Protection Agency and any other agency from saying anything about it because they might expose how damaging this could be. And then you get into the realm of withdrawing from uh, trade negotiations. Fine, I see where that's going. But you're on to then the steps of we'll build the wall. Mm-hmm. which isn't practical. Everybody knows it's not practical, but we'll build the wall, and again, we'll get the Mexicans uh, to pay for it. So where's all this coming from? I mean, every president issues executive orders. I know that. That's fine. But these highly charged orders, it turns out, are not coming from a wide range of consultation. And this is, it comes from Bannon, and it comes from, apparently, a 30-year-old named Stephen Miller, who was a warm-up act, for Trump on the campaign trail, but caught everyone's attention. And so he's now the rising star alongside Bannon. And these two guys, unelected, Mm -hmm. not part of any agency, are just running roughshod. Well, we've been hearing about them so much over the course of the last few days. Um, First of all, when the immigration decision was Mm -hmm. originally put out, there was a lot of confusion about exactly what it meant, about whether people who already had visas or green cards could come in or go out. And uh, the reports in the newspapers over the weekend suggested that um, when Homeland Security was operating a relatively loose interpretation of who could come in, the White House stepped in to clarify. And by the White House here, we mean uh, Steve Bannon. Yeah. Uh, likewise, we had that story uh, simultaneously that Steve Bannon is now a permanent principal member of the National Security Council, unlike apparently the director of national yeah. intelligence and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the, which is the, the senior military uh, advisor. So f- for... Um, uh, for the purposes of mood music, I guess, this small group of people with no meaningful government experience uh, who are associated with a very hard-edged, ethnocentric, uh, conservative ideology are now running a kitchen cabinet that seems to be able to get executive orders from, from A to Z without bringing the, the rest of the government into the process. Yeah, I mean, I know you and I are political geeks, but I'm going to ask the listeners to bear with a little bit of, of geekiness right now and why yeah. this is so important in your reference to the National Security Council. Uh, National Security Council is the chief body that makes U.S. foreign policy and supervises operations since 1947 um, at the start of the Cold War. Now, that's always involved then, you know, Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense. What technically what happened is, is two things. One is, is that uh, Steve Bannon, the uh, chief of staff, who is Rents Priebus, Mm-hmm. And, almost unnoticed, the presidential counselor, who is Kellyanne Conway, who's the chief PR person for the administration, they are now going to be able to attend any meeting of the National Security Council. Now, that violates a principal rule of American politics, which is you do not politicize the National Security Council. You know, you don't bring political considerations, narrow political considerations, into very important matters of foreign policy. Uh, but then... What happened in the further step is is that Bannon and Priebus became full members of what's called the Principles Committee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because David Axelrod, for example, who was uh, Barack Obama's campaign manager and then, and then a political yeah. strategist, used to attend these meetings occasionally uh, sometimes, and that's being cited as precedent for making a full member of this committee out of Steve Bannon, yeah. which is real apples and oranges comparison exactly. stuff. The Principles Committee is effectively the National Security Council without the president and the chair. It's chaired instead by, uh, I think, the Director of Homeland Security or the National Security Advisor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, Bannon is a full member, and as you mentioned, 
the director of national intelligence is not. Mm -hmm. America's top military commander, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is not. They, they, they will attend from time to time, time to depending time. on whether there are issues that concern their portfolios arise. What a meeting of the National Security Council uh, that doesn't uh, involve in any way the areas of responsibility of the, the DNI or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs is. I, I have no idea what they're talking about on those days, but, but uh, it's going to be interesting to find out. Well, let's bring this full circle. Now, this, these changes were issued in an executive order. Who's been writing the executive orders, or most of them, over the past mm -hmm. week? It's quite plausible that Steve Bannon made himself a member of the, National, of the Principals Committee of the National Security Council, got Trump to sign off on it, Folks, that's not the American national security state, which was created at the end of World War II. That's not how it's supposed to operate. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying this from the sense of just saying we're a little bit upset that every model we've used, Adam and I, has been ripped up over this. This raises serious questions about accountability and responsibility, not to mention, mm -hmm. as we said, racism. I do. Uh, I mean, as, as a final note on Steve Bannon, I do wonder if he may have gotten out, uh, to use an Obama phrase, a little over his skis over the course of the last couple of days. There have been so many news, news stories all through the media in the last 48 hours that are basically saying Steve Bannon is super powerful. He's the one who... Um, makes the decisions on everything from immigration to national security. He's the power behind the throne. You know, that's generally a bad idea if you're a backroom guy because that kind of visibility hinders your ability to actually function bureaucratically. When the president, as we all know, is a man-child who absolutely refuses to share his spotlight, it seems all the more dangerous that you would do it. So if he's doing this himself, all of this self-promotion, then I wonder if he's really thought it through. And if other people are doing it to him, then I wonder if they might be uh, subtly undermining his position. Uh, because it really, if I was Donald Trump and I was reading these stories about how uh, this guy basically runs my government for me, I'm not sure I'd be thrilled. Okay, it's time for number of the week, uh, the interstitial segment in which we take a number tied to a new story and give a little bit of chat about it. I'm going to cheat slightly uh, and go back to something that I referred to in my introduction. Uh, my two numbers are 50 and 8. That is to say, Donald Trump has arrived at the point where 50% of Americans polled uh, by Gallup disapprove. Um, don't merely fail to approve, actively disapprove of how he is handling his time in office. And that took eight days. Eight days is how long he had to be in office. Um, that is unprecedented. Um, you know, it is uh, uh, usually the case that a president has to be a couple of years into a pretty tough uh, administration before they arrive at the point where most people think they're doing a bad job. And I think what that reflects uh, as do a lot of the policy steps that we've that we've that we've been talking about so far is that this president, despite having won one of the narrowest possible mandates, lost the popular vote, uh, won a few key states by narrow margins to get ahead in the in, in the electoral college, is governing not at all as a marginal victor, but he's governing as someone who's won a full-throated mandate to do whatever it is that 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 he wants to do. Which, considering he got elected with you know a, a non-majority plurality of the vote, uh, having in turn won his primary contest with a non-majority plurality of the vote, shows a bold confidence that he's able to continue to pursue that same strategy in the presidency to success. It seems like he's basically made the gamble that a certain kind of um, pissed off, uh, probably white, probably male uh, person who thinks the country's going in the wrong direction wants uh, a good solid dose of this kind of populist, populist inflected uh, cultural and um, racial conservatism, and he's going to give it to them. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see play out. Like People were told a lot during the campaign to take uh, Donald Trump seriously, but not literally. Uh, that was one of the, the catchphrases by which people meant that he was throwing shapes to show whose side he was on, but he didn't mean this stuff. He wasn't going to do it. Well, it seems pretty clear he is going to do it. So I'd be interested to see how many people who enjoyed his persona as a candidate um, because they could be associated with the thrill 
of these counter-political correctness uh, kind of positions, how much they will continue to enjoy it as they get to see the human consequences of actually implementing this uh, this agenda. The early signs are that he's going to basically attempt to govern like he has a huge mandate off the back of minority support, and uh, that's going to be quite something for the for, for the historians and the political scientists to watch. Thank you, Adam. Uh, I have another number with reference to popularity, which is 1,000. 1,000 is the percentage increase in subscriptions for the New York Times online edition after Donald Trump's election. Why do I mention that? Because it gets to the heart of what Mr. Trump himself might put in all capital letters on his Twitter account, fake news. Uh, Mr. Trump, in one of his tweets last week, said, failing New York Times, no wonder no one reads about them as they continue to lie, terrible, fake news. And of course, the New York Times gently, too quietly, I think, pointed out, in fact, that subscriptions have significantly increased, which is absolutely right. Why do I mention that? Well, Adam made a fleeting reference, but I think a very potent one, which is that the strategy of the chief strategist, Steve Bannon, and indeed of the president himself, is to blur or sometimes even ignore the reality of a situation by presenting what counselor to the president, Kellyanne Conway, has now infamously talked about as alternative facts. Uh, alternative facts do not just mean the size of the not-so-large inaugural crowd, uh, do not mean, for example, the non-existent magnometers that supposedly prevented people from getting there to celebrate President Trump. It's part of a systematic campaign. So we're not only talking, as you mentioned, Adam, trying to appeal to that supposed minority that is the righteous minority that will carry Trump through. They are going to try to not just limit and discredit, but to destroy any media that stand in the way. So where do we go from here? Well, all you folks who enjoy Fox News, continue to enjoy it. Or, for example, where Mr. Trump gave his latest interview last night, which is the Christian Broadcasting Network. But realize we are talking about an administration which, in ripping up the rules in so many ways, is ripping up the rules in terms of reliable information. Because if we're talking about reliable information, they would not survive. On Thursday and Friday of last week, Theresa May, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, jetted into Washington, D.C., first to deliver a speech on foreign affairs to Republicans. I'm not sure. What is the technical name of the organization she spoke to, Scott? Do you know? I know that it was like Republicans collectively in some setting. It, it was do, like, they have, do they have a name when they It was they like gather? they call themselves Congress. What is the, what is the collective noun for a gathering they, of Republicans? Oh, I could come up with some that can't be broadcast in a collective now, but they actually call themselves like the Congress of the Future or something like that. Like mm -hmm. this is like, you know, the new American empire that they were going to be presiding over. Okay, so she went to speak to them, first of all, then to become the first foreign leader to meet President Trump. In both, her objective was to sell the message that the so-called special relationship between the U.S. and U.K. had never been stronger or more necessary. She was also keen to get the ball rolling towards a new U.S.-U.K. trade deal to help ease Britain's path out of the EU and the European single market, which apparently is on the way imminently, and to persuade Trump to signal less ambiguously his commitment to the NATO alliance. If those were the criteria, it went, uh, let's say, okay. And the British press rewarded her with front pages that hailed the renewal of the bond between the nations and slightly more disconcertingly displayed pictures of the PM and the president holding hands at one point during the visit. When, however, less than a day later, the world erupted in response to Trump's executive order on immigration, which we've just discussed, the question arose of whether Mrs. May had been insufficiently forthright in spelling out where she disagreed with Mr. Trump's policies and attitudes across a range of fronts, including immigration, torture, climate change, and women's rights. She aggravated this impression by appearing non-committal when asked for her view on the U.S. freeze on admitting Syrian refugees, in contrast to, oh, let's say, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who reportedly telephoned the president to explain his obligations under the Geneva Convention. So, 
Has the Prime Minister expertly danced through a minefield of potentially explosive conflicts to secure the national interest by getting on the new president's good side, as her advocates in the press would have it, or has she cravenly mortgaged her principles in exchange for short-sighted political gains? Scott, I am not going to struggle to work out where I'm going to place my money in uh, guessing where you land on that binary, but have at it. I think the Prime Minister bravely defended British interest and made a courageous decision by joining President Trump in enlightened policies. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm voting Craven. In fact, I'm going to vote Craven, and uh, I'll probably double down with uh, spineless as well as uh, manipulative. Uh, let's, let's explain why. Point one, and I'm going to go point by point just to spell this out logically. Mm-hmm. She goes to Washington because she knows that we're going to have a world of economic pain if Britain does follow through with a hard Brexit and leaves the European Union. Mm -hmm. So to cover that economic pain, she's going to present the grail of a U.S.-U.K. trade deal, which isn't going to take place for years in the best of all possible worlds, but somehow is going to make us feel better. Point two on a more serious front in terms of at least that I can accept, she's going to go over and tell, ask Donald privately, you know, do you really want to leave NATO? That might not be a good idea. And is Russia really that nice, especially that guy, Mr. Putin? But then point three, in terms of the public, what's that word they like to use, optics of this? She kisses his backside. I mean, not literally. I mean, that holding hands was a scary yeah, at least At least we didn't get a photo of that. Yeah, exactly. It could have gotten much worse, folks. But holding his hand, apparently because he was afraid of stares, the British (laughs) government says, trying to cover this up, right? Mm -hmm. So she does not publicly oppose torture. She does not publicly call him out regarding the NATO issue. That was done in briefing a journalist away from the press conference. She has to pick up after he tries to humiliate a British journalist, BBC journalist, Uh, who ask a very challenging question. So she has now, in effect, covered up for Donald when the immigration story breaks out, which leads us to point four, which is what she did then, which you alluded to, but I just want to amplify it. In Turkey, a country which has taken more than 2.5 million Syrian refugees, a country which, along with others, has had to bear the brunt of what is happening in the Middle East, including those countries from which immigrants are now being barred from the U.S., she stands and says nothing, absolutely nothing. Well, what she said was worse to the effect of, well, we've got our policy, they've got theirs, who, a, who am I to judge, sorry, or something it, to that sorry, effect. Sorry, I apologize. Sorry, washes our hands, it's up to them. No, mm. it is not up to them. The refugee and migrant issue is an international issue, Prime Minister. Sorry, getting a bit preachy here. It is an international issue at the very least that connects all this. Now, here's my postscript, why I want to tell you why I'm sounding a little bit I understand how the White House spin machine operates. So I understand that when she finally, more than 48 hours later, comes out to say, okay, we don't agree with this decision to bar immigrants, how everyone's going to go front page with this is that Britain supposedly has influence and will modify the U.S. But in fact, what they did this morning as we record uh, on Monday what they did was they actually came close to lying. What they came out and said is Theresa May and Foreign Secretary Johnson have been able to assure everyone that Britons who hold dual nationalities with one of these seven countries will have no problems getting into the United States. Isn't it wonderful they stood up for our rights? In no way has the U.S. given that commitment. What the U.S. said was we're going to be reviewing the procedure for dual nationals who do not come directly from those seven countries. Mm-hmm. That did not just apply to Britain. Mm-hmm. So the amount of trying to cover your back here is worrying me because I return back to point one. This was all done in short-sighted politics mm-hmm. to cover up the fact that the government has got itself between a rock and a hard place about what happens when they leave the European Union mm-hmm. and they may have to continue holding Donald Trump's hands because mm-hmm. they economically need the illusion that he will save us. Yeah. I mean, let's let's try and give this the most charitable interpretation we can. 
which would be this. Theresa May has decided, in light of the fact that Britain is leaving the European Union and therefore needs all the friends it can get economically and diplomatically, in light of the long history of close relations between the US and the UK over a long time that basically provides the UK with a lot of the residual status that, that, that it holds in the world, she's decided that in spite of the fact that this obnoxious joker is now the president, she needs to make... Uh, a big, bold statement that the show is still on the road and in fighting form, that these, um, that these uh, present uh, difficult times require not less but more of the American-British relationship. And in order to do that, she is going to have to walk a really high wire that involves a pe- not uh, calling out the president about all of these things that she disagrees with them about, uh, to do with w- women's rights, to do with immigration, to do with torture, etc., because he hates, hates, hates to be criticized, and the slightest suspicion of that, and everything goes wrong. But at the same time, she's going to take terrible political heat uh, at home and abroad for being cowardly and not standing up to do it. So she's already made a decision to the effect that she's going to push any uh, any principled vocal criticism of Donald Trump deep, deep down inside and just gutted out to, to try and s- serve what she thinks are the longer-term strategic interests. And she goes, to, goes over there, they meet, she extracts uh, a laughably half-hearted commitment to NATO, where basically he doesn't even say... Uh, the, the, the basic dynamic was that she stood at the podium and said, oh, and while before we came on camera, the president said that uh, he's 100% behind NATO. Isn't that right? And kind of looks over at him and he doesn't contradict her. And that's, like, that's, the, that's the bedrock of uh, bold statement and reassurance that we're supposed to base ourselves on, apparently. So she, she gets through all of that, gets her front pages, goes home, and then 24 hours later, I would love to know whether like, whether they even mentioned this to her as something that was going to happen while she was over there or if she was as surprised as the rest of us. She turns on the TV, picks up the papers, and all of this outrageous uh, Muslim ban reprise stuff is, is, is all over the place. And she can't turn back now in a way. Like, the... Having already gone that far, like if you wanted reasons to say Donald Trump is like outrageous and you know needs to be uh, treated as a pariah in international affairs and needs to moderate his behavior across a range of fronts, you didn't need this new thing to lead you to do that. You already had all the information you needed. So she's made a choice and she's not going to do that. She can't now reverse 180 degrees and uh, like listen to petitions asking her not to let Donald Trump come and have his visit to the UK after all and give news conferences about what a, what an outrage it all is because then she's just going to have nothing. Then she's going to have everybody at home saying that she's a spineless, craven, self-interested, short-sighted hypocrite and she's going to really piss off and alienate the American president uh, and, and get none of the things that she was hoping for from him. Whereas if she just pretends that none of this is happening in that way that politicians uh, kind of make a make an art form of doing uh, if she kind of makes some of the right noises at just a low enough level that it doesn't make the american radar then maybe she can get through this that would seem to be like that was that that, that is the situation she's in and it is to some extent a situation of her own creation but now she's in it i just don't see any way that she could profitably do an about turn sure she she's not and i, I mean adam is I wouldn't say hindsight because I, I thought it at the time. She had an alternative, and she missed it. And that is, it actually happened on Thursday night. So before she met Trump, when she spoke to this, mm. these Republican congressmen, here was the opportunity to make a speech which situated the U.S. and the U.K. within an international context. Right? You know, a mm. lot of countries have got these issues. We've all got to deal with it. But she chose instead to position as it is us in America leading everybody else. Mm. And I can. You know, four invocations of Churchill, including the Iron Curtain speech, a direct explicit reference to the U.S. and the U.K. basically being at the helm of this new world. Now, everybody knows that's illusory in terms Mm -hmm. of power. But she's now tied herself to this idea of the Anglo-Saxon combination. And, and at her press conference as well, she was talking about, you know, we are renewing our country as you are renewing yours, which sounded like a, a a pretty explicit endorsement of political processes undergo underway in the United States that most people would regard with some trepidation and distaste. Absolutely. Renew- she said on that Thursday night, renewal of the American era, 
And she then said, President Trump represented not Washington. He won despite Washington by representing what every working class man and woman wanted. Mm -hmm. So she's like all, she's basically put all her chips into the pot, which as a good poker player, Mm -hmm. you do not do. So yeah, especially, especially not if the guy you're talking about is this like, like notorious, belligerent, uh, mercurial idiot who's liable yeah. to say and do, whether deliberately or inadvertently, something that totally undercuts you at five minutes' notice down the line. It's not like he's a controversial but consistent figure around whom you can at least uh, tack your sails. He's, uh, he's all over the place. Yeah. The only thing you can be sure of is that whatever he says, he'll say it in the most offensive and aggressive way possible. Yeah. Content TBD. Exactly. But, but everyone was primed for this. What's been interesting both, as you mentioned, she got her front pages just to go beyond that. You know, they primed all the journalists going out there. All right, we're going to do this. We're going to, you know, trade Detroit. And if you watch the Times, you know, Rupert Nodock paper and Bastion, the British establishment, but they are, they, all their chips are now in as well, mm. that she's going to lead us to this glorious revival. The BBC's coverage of the press conference was so uh, deferential uh, on the Friday and through much of the weekend until it became clear how serious the protests are in the U.S. And now the BBC is reopening the space to say, well, maybe mm. we've got a bit of a problem, which mm. is happening here. Um, I, I think we're in an interesting world. And normally I'd say, okay, we'll revert back to Westminster politics. We'll revert back to, you know, which politicians wear on Brexit. But this is the corrosive effect of Trump. Every action he takes now is going to drag her down, mm. I think, and the effects on British politics, I can't quite predict where we're going to go. Well, and let's think about it this way, maybe. It's like about short, the medium, and the long okay. term, right? Like in the short term, I guess uh, she is having to absorb an awful lot of heat because he's awful and he's doing this stuff everyone's really upset about yeah. and she can't criticize him because she's made her bed now and she's got to lie in it. But her hope presumably is that in the medium term – if she can endure this awkwardness and embarrassment because Donald Trump is going to be the president for an extended period uh, and because the U.S.-U.K. relationship is, is, is like important on a year-by-year -year basis, not just a week-by-week -week basis, she will end up looking statesmanlike for not having uh, rashly rushed in with, with, with savage criticism. She's preserved the relationship even at political cost to herself. Now, whether or not you think that's wise in turn depends on the long run because it may well be that in one or two years' time you get credit for having stood by Donald Trump when the world was saying you needed to do otherwise. In five years' time, in ten years' time, there are two. There are at least two possibilities. One is that Donald Trump is universally reviled as a horrifying experiment with ethno-nationalist politics, rejected by the electorate. And, you know, like the Bush administration times 10, it comes to be seen as a sign of moral turpitude and uh, strategic uh, uh, misperception that you would want to associate yourselves with them. Or the other is that uh, Donald Trump is actually extremely successful, but what that means is you've become one more enabler of this dark new dawning uh, authoritarianism in the United States. And, you know, maybe that's not going to look great in the history books either. But it certainly seems like, you know... The conception of what the long term is that's currently prevailing is not all that far in the future in terms of its line of sight. Yeah, I, I, I would add another consideration. And again, remind you, I, look, there, this is a government driven first and foremost because it is just close to panic mode over what happens when they leave the EU. And that is she's miscalculated in tying herself to the U.S. in terms of the way that global politics is going to work out now. If you look over the past week the reconfigurations of what governments are doing. Germany has been in financial talks with China in the past week. Uh, the EU is looking at rearranging its financial political approach to look to other areas of the world. We know the multi-level game the Russians are playing. The idea that the U.S. is at the center of global politics now and that everything follows from American power, uh, that's so 2001, right? Yeah. And it's now... The fact that even if Trump is not as bad as expected, the U.K. has not actually put itself at the center of global leadership. It risks isolating itself by tying itself to an America, which is increasingly on the margins of people's calculations. Mm. 
And, you know, you, you certainly don't get any credit for even for, for being seen to even try and do the right thing. Like the, the, the danger for Theresa May now is that she's set up to, to be lose-lose on both counts, that, yeah. you, that you end up not achieving anything of great material consequence at the same time as having been seen to mortgage everything that you notably stood for in order to, in order to make the failed attempt to achieve it. And that's, you know, as, uh, as Tony Blair can probably tell you, that's a pretty lonely place to end up when you're seen as having made a failed gamble that involved all of your moral authority. I'm not sure Tony recognizes he's failed yet, but yeah, I take the analogy. <laughs> okay, I think we've set the world to rights. Uh, this is a topic to which I don't doubt we'll be returning plenty over the course of the... Uh, I don't know, how long do we think he's going to last, Scott? <laughs> over the course, of the, over the, course of the years to, to come. I'm willing to go with What are the names the of, those, of, of those clauses in the Constitution again? Well, let's, let's Incapacity put it, and or impeachment. Let's play this game, dear listener, just before we sign off. I will put the marker down. I will put the marker down as um, December 2017. I think Donald Trump could well be gone by December 2017, not necessarily because of impeachment, but because of health reasons. I think that Donald may work himself up into such a lather that he's not really that well-liked, uh, that he may, if not depart this mortal, uh, shuffle off this mortal coil, at least depart his current office. Well, uh, duly scribbled, Scott. We shall, re- we, shall, we shall have to have a special edition in December 2017 to revisit that particular prediction, possibly from our bunker. Um, thank you very much for being with us, listeners. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poor Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can leave us a rating or a comment, which is very helpful because it helps others discover the pod. That would be much appreciated. You can share us on social media as well. If you like this episode, why not stick it on Facebook or on Twitter or somewhere else and tell people, Hey guys, I discovered this thing, and you know what? They're actually not that bad. You can also come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pollworldview to get links to the uh, podcast episodes and or various other things, our media appearances, which are um, increasing in inverse proportion to our confidence and comfort in political trends. Our participant today, <laughs> our participant singular today, has been Scott Lucas. Where can people find you online if they're looking, Scott? I am on Twitter, always at Scott Lucas underscore EA, and camped out on that news and analysis website, eaworldview.com. And when he says always, I think he means that pretty literally, not just seriously, everybody. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn, one, Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook, if you want to get numerical about it, but I'm the one who looks like me. Uh, so if you see my staff profile, you won't struggle to recognize me. I'm also on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, although I use that less frequently because it is a medium which I think recent trends have revealed is not as uh, not as in line with the progressive sensibility, in my opinion. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon. We certainly hope you will be too. Bye. Hang in there.